Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. And our topic today is Israel and anti-Semitism. And I have with me uh, two of the most uh, significant people, among the most significant people in the Messianic Jewish movement. Uh, and uh, it's David Brickner of Jews for Jesus, who's with me here in the studio, and Mitch Glazer, who uh, runs uh, Chosen People Ministries. We've got him Skyped in from uh, the lovely island of Manhattan. And uh, uh, thank you all for joining me today. It's great to be with you. Yeah. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about each of your ministries. Um, uh, David, I'll start off with you. Talk a little bit about what Jews for Jesus is, is all about. Well, uh, Jews for Jesus is a name that uh, people associate with a lot of different things. We have a little plaque on the cornerstone of our headquarters that says, established 32 AD, give or take a year. <laughs> but the organization actually began 40 years ago, 1973, and uh, God has blessed us with a, a direct evangelism focus. We exist to make the Messiahship of Jesus an unavoidable issue to our Jewish people worldwide. Hmm. And so through all kinds of creative means, through direct evangelism, boots on the ground missionaries, we're active in 14 countries around the world. Our largest branch actually right now is uh, Israel. Hmm. Tel Aviv, we have 24 staff there, and uh, we are, through all kinds of different ways, trying to get Jewish people to reconsider what they think they've heard and have dismissed, and that is that Jesus really is the one of whom the prophet spoke. He is our Messiah, and that we should put our trust in Him for our salvation. Oh, and, and Chosen People Ministries uh, talk a little bit about, about what they do, and it may sound a little bit like an echo, but that's okay, as well as, uh, as, as how long they've been around. Chosen People is uh, 120 years old, and I'm not the founder, just in case anybody is uh, wanting, wondering about that. We began because a Hungarian rabbi, Leopold Kohn, got saved on the streets of Lower Manhattan and had a real heart and passion to reach his own Jewish people. And so in 1894, Chosen People began. And from the beginning, we did a lot of different things. Uh, rabbi Kohn would preach the gospel, start Messianic meetings on Friday night and Saturday morning and speak to Christians on Sunday, and then Rabbi Kohn would feed poor uh, Jewish immigrants, and um, he would set up a medical dispensary uh, in Brooklyn at that time. Brooklyn only had uh, probably uh, less than 100,000 Jewish people today. It has close to a million Jewish people. And so uh, we continue with uh, Rabbi Kohn's vision, although our website is better. <laughs> and so we do a, a lot of different things. Uh, we're in, uh, in uh, counting the United States, uh, quite a few, more than a dozen countries, more than a dozen cities all throughout the United States. Uh, we do friendship evangelism. We do uh, media-based evangelism. And then we also uh, start what we call Messianic Centers. And we have centers of operation in Israel, New York City, London, Germany, Argentina, a bunch of other places. And then we also plant what are called Messianic congregations or Jewish Christian churches. And we've started dozens of them over the years. And right now we're associated around the globe with about 40 Messianic congregations that are either being planted by chosen people or who have chosen people staff leaders 
uh, in their pulpits. And, and so God's doing some great things, and we're seeing some Jewish people really open to the gospel, and our international headquarters is right here in New York City. And the goal is to make Messiah known to the Jewish people and to, and make him, uh, and to encourage uh, people to let people, Jewish people know about that. Is that basically correct? Well, we have a twofold mission. One is to directly uh, evangelize and disciple Jewish people, and then secondly, is to encourage and help our Christian brothers and sisters do the same with their friends and Jewish uh, Jewish relatives and loved ones. Okay, so um, so that gives people a, a sense of, of of what you all do and your location and things. So our topic today is is interesting. I think that that uh, the view of Israel has undergone a shift in the time that I've been involved here at Dallas Seminary in t talking about and doing theology. Uh, when I was a student in the '70s and then in the early '80s, Israel was kind of seen as the 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 rise of the nation of Israel was seen as kind of a fulfillment of Scripture. God was at work. Um, there were uh, interesting things going on in the world, uh, things that hadn't been anticipated as a result of, uh, of the nation being established in, in 1948, that kind of thing. And, and the attitude towards Israel, I think, in the evangelical community was mostly positive. Uh, we've seen a shift in the last what, 15, 20 years? And I'd like for each of you to describe how you see that and perhaps why you think that's taken place. So David, I'll start with you. Uh, why do you – how is Israel viewed today and, and how is that different than what I described was the case, say, in the 80s? I think it definitely looks different than it did in you know the 60s and 70s when there was so much enthusiasm with Israel, with the recapture of Jerusalem. And I think it's become more complex because of the awareness in the church of the plight of the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And so for many, it's not a biblically-based uh, um, viewpoint, but rather a social consciousness-based uh, tangle mm -hmm. that we really need to help uh, Christians to untangle mm -hmm. and recognize that God loves Arabs and Jews equally, mm -hmm. and that the greatest impetus for the gospel is when Arabs and Jews can say to one another, I love you in Jesus' name. Mm. And so the problem is that you have these poles of, you know, kind of a political Zionism that finds root in certain wings of the church, uh, and then the very social conscious uh, that has is turning into a kind of a divestment move uh, among those Christians who want to kind of punish Israel for the plight of the Palestinians. Mm. And both polls, I think, are wrong mm -hmm. and misleading and not where the church should be. To find a middle ground where we care for the Palestinian situation and show the kind of love that Christ would have us to, and yet still believe that what God is doing in Israel is of great significance out of the ashes of the Holocaust has risen a modern state, which I believe is God's intention. And um, there are still many, many Christians who absolutely believe that. And uh, so I don't think that the support for Israel has necessarily waned. Mm -hmm. It's become more complicated, and we need to help, especially a younger generation, figure that out. Mm. And the only way we can do that is carve out a large middle ground where you can be supportive of Israel and still care for the plight of the Palestinians. Interesting. Uh, Mitch, what's your take on, the, on this question? 
Well, I agree with most of what David David said, or much of what David said, and uh, we're working along the same lines. Uh, I can add to it by suggesting this. I think that our contemporary church, as uh, both David and I travel around to many churches and speak, and so we have a broad range of experience, which is a real blessing, because we get to know a lot of different types of Christians. And so I, I generally see a de-theologizing uh, within the church. And I think we're on a, a descending theological, descending theological spiral, uh, which is sometimes even reflected in the curriculum at seminaries. And so I see less languages, less theology, less Bible, except, of course, at Dallas Seminary. And uh, I, what I see is that people are making decisions that they used to make based upon the authority of Scripture. Now they're basing their decisions in some way following uh, the culture and, uh, and so on. And so, for example, one of the values of the young people is uh, the equanimity of all ethnic peoples, religions, and others, gender issues, and so on, which you've wrestled uh, with as well. And so everybody's the same, Jews, Gentiles, the ground's even at the foot of the cross. There's no difference between what a man can do, what a woman can do, and everything else. And so there's no, so then trying to get uh, Christians, particularly younger groups, to buy into the fact that for some reason God chose the Jewish people uh, through the Abrahamic covenant to be his people for a special purpose that indeed would bless the nations is pretty is getting more difficult because the culture is demanding that we see everybody and treat them all equally and so it's very difficult to wrestle with the theology of of uh, of God's selection of, of people and nations and then to try and deal with equanimity and uh, treating everybody uh, equally and so I think that uh, we need to do more by way of biblical theology uh, to help people make good choices. And I also think that the uh, alleged uh, uh, decline in support for Israel uh, is overstated. Uh, a lot of the churches that I go to are very, very much pro-Israel, but then again, a lot of churches uh, uh, tend to be less, they're not, they're asking deep questions, but they're not solving these questions by understanding the Bible or theology because too often they're following the culture, which the church does tend to do at various stages. So I think we need deeper cultural engagement to decipher the difference between cultural and biblical values. I think that we need to increase our understanding of a biblical theology of Israel and the Jewish people. And I think that once we start doing that, then we have a better basis to talk about some of the more profound issues of reconciliation, of of living in, in peace as one people, and so on. So I think that that's just some of what I would add to what, what David said. 
Okay, so the situation is actually quite complex. We've got multiple nationalities involved. We've got multiple ways of thinking about religious involvement. I mean, people think, well, you've got your Jews, you've got your your uh, Christians, and you've got your Muslims, and so it's just you know those three groups. But actually, within those groups, you've got subdivisions that make things more complicated because you've got uh, Messianic believers on the one hand, you've got Arab and Palestinian believers on another, and so that complicates the mix, uh, and they're, they're both minorities in the midst of these huge majorities that surround them, uh, that kind of thing, uh, making the, the situation on the ground more complex. Well, I, d- I don't want to analyze the political situation so much, although I think it's important to have that as the backdrop. Let's step back and say, all right, why? what, what does the Bible tell us about uh, the place of Israel in the program of God? Let's, let's just start there and think through. We've mentioned the covenants, so I think what I'll do is I'll let each of you uh, explain uh, why you think the Abrahamic covenant is so important in this discussion. Mitch, I'll start with you since I led off with David on the previous question. So um, explain why Israel is important in Scripture and, and, and put us in Genesis 12. Well, I, I should begin with a quote from my favorite uh, theologian, Reb Tevye, in Fiddler on the Roof. When uh, Confronted with the, uh, the persecution and dispersion of the Jews from Anatevko, uh, where they would all probably move to Brighton Beach and other places like that, uh, Reb Tevya kind of looks up to heaven and says, next time choose somebody else. Hmm. And I think that it's a great line because uh, election uh, of the Jewish people in Scripture is viewed by Jewish people in terms of obligation rather than privilege. Hmm. And the obligation goes all the way back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where God said, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so it's not only that God chose a person, Abraham chose a a nation, the Jewish people, that God selected a land, uh, uh, Israel, but he also gave Abraham and the Jewish people a mission, a vocation. And the mission was to be his bridge of blessings to the entire world. He sealed the covenant uh, in blood in Genesis chapter 17. He passed the covenant along to Abraham, uh, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Uh, He reiterates the covenant at Mount Sinai, and he also reiterates the covenant in uh, Deuteronomy 7, for example, where he tells uh, uh, the Jewish people that they were not selected because they were their largest in number, but the fewest in number, and again reaffirms the election of the Jewish people based upon his selection through the patriarchs, through the fathers. And then, of course, jumping all the way to the New Testament, this is reaffirmed by Paul in Romans 9 through 11, but especially in chapter 11, particularly in verses 25 through 29, which speak about the future of the Jewish remnant turning uh, to Jesus. And all Israel will be saved. The remnant will become the nation. The nation will be the remnant, etc. But uh, again, Paul says that the reason uh, for Israel's election is because of what God did through the patriarchs. And so it's foundational, uh, the Abrahamic covenant. It, it, it predicts the future of the nation. It predicts the future of the land and it links the mission of Israel, and it also links the mission of the Gentiles. 
because in this age, uh, God said through it to Abraham, I'll bless those who bless thee and curse those who curse thee. And, uh, and so God, God wants to bless the Gentile nations and individuals. I can make one more point, and then I'll let David run with it. Okay. And that is, uh, I'll curse those who curse thee. Uh, and, you know, there are, uh, there's two different words for curse. One is to make light, and the other speaks of the judgments upon the Jewish people outlined in Leviticus 26 and 28. And uh, the whole idea here is that if, if we make light of God's role and place of the Jewish people, then we might very well be subject to the curses uh, in, that were outlined for, is, for Israel based upon her disobedience in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy uh, 28. And so I think that, you know, we need to issue a prophetic warning to the church. And that is that if the Abrahamic covenant is still in effect, it's not an elective in God's plan any more than anything else God told us uh, to do is an elective. So unless the Abrahamic covenant is conditional and is cut off for some reason, either by time or some other purpose, then it stands. The people, the land, the mission, the responsibility of Gentiles to bless rather than curse. And I believe that this is important. It's one of the reasons why we've just done a conference on all of this and why you and I, Daryl, have edited a book that's going to be coming out that will be a biblical theology of Israel and the Jewish people. Because we need not only the Jewish people, but we need Christians to understand that uh, being a blessing to Israel, whether that blessing you even can we're not even talking politically. Let's just assume that the greatest blessing is to bring the gospel to Jewish people. Then that's a responsibility. That's a duty. Romans 11, 11, God wants the Gentiles to make Jewish people jealous. That's all part of an Abrahamic worldview. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Okay, uh, David, that was a Mitch gave a pretty he did full yeah, uh, look great. at that. What, what do you have to add to that? Well, maybe I shouldn't be thinking about giving you more work to do, Daryl. Okay. But it seems to me <laughs> that what we need is a postmodern understanding of the doctrine of election, mm -hmm. and you know that kind of preferential treatment is very politically incorrect, and mm -hmm. so that's one of the reasons why people with, as Mitch pointed out, less biblical uh, sophistication and theology really wrestle with this issue of 
the Jewish people being called by God, being elect by God. But so the idea of a people having a special place is kind of a problem for people. It is. And yet, if we throw off the election of the Jewish people through the Abrahamic covenant, then we have no basis for understanding the election of individual believers and of the church, the body of Christ. There's that old little a poem that was written by somebody in London back in the early part of the 20th century, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Mm. And I think that is a lot where people are today, how odd of God to choose the Jews. He goes on to say, not so odd as those who choose the Jewish God, yet hate the Jews. Mm. And so I would say that hatred towards the Jews may not be the best way to describe it, but kind of a, a simmering under the surface resentment. What makes you so special? Mm -hmm. And unless we can really explain how Abraham and the Jewish people were not elect for themselves, but for the glory of God mm -hmm. and for the blessing of all people, mm -hmm. and that he is now the main vehicle as children of Abraham for every tribe and tongue and nation to come together and receive the fullness of God's goodness. Like Paul says in Ephesians 4, this is the wisdom of God mm -hmm. that was not known beforehand, but it is the wisdom of God, and therefore it needs to be embraced by the body of Christ as the wisdom of God. And then they can recognize all of the implications for that ongoing election. We need to help the church figure that out today. So, so we've got this base uh, in which God has uh, selected out Israel for a special vocation. I like that word, um, and that vocation involves blessing, uh, blessing uh, the world really through what it is—the uh, knowledge of God that comes through the revelation of the people of God being Israel. Yeah, it, God is honored in that. We've got those things in place. And of course, the, the next place to go probably in discussing the biblical base of this is to talk about the new covenant that comes out of the Abrahamic covenant to a certain degree and kind of completes the loop. Um, how is it that what, – what's Israel's role in that covenantal promise where now we've got the new covenant? Some people call it the renewed covenant. I actually don't like that name so much because it does, the, within the offering of the covenant, it makes the point, this is going to be a covenant not like the one I made on the mountain, not like the one I made in Sinai. So what does the new covenant give to this picture, and what's Israel's role in, in that covenant? Well, I think first of all, we need to recognize that the New Covenant, as Jeremiah uh, speaks of it, was given to Israel and Judah. Mm -hmm. So it has to work for them before it can work for anybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's important then to understand the nature of the relationship of the rest of the body of Christ to that new covenant. That comes through being grafted in mm -hmm. to the rich root of the olive tree, as Paul talks about in Romans 11. And we're definitely going to come back to that topic, because that question about whether the church has taken the place of Israel and Judah is an important question in this conversation. We will come back to that that specifically. So go ahead. But I think that the picture of one new man mm -hmm. that Paul paints in Ephesians as part of this mystery that's now been revealed. 22. Mm -hmm. is, is something that we have to see as the big, the macro 
uh, picture of redemption mm-hmm. that includes a place for the Jewish people, and that even in eschatology, which has unfortunately been the only basis for many people's understanding of Jews in Israel, mm-hmm. uh, eschatology, of course, fills in the picture not just in a future kingdom, but in an eternity where the New Jerusalem has both the tribes and the apostles on the on the gates and on the walls, and this is this coming together in a wonderful way of God's purposes that stretch all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12 and all the way forward to the end of the book in Revelation. And when we get that macro picture, then we can start to apply it to some of the more pressing issues that we stopped, talked about at the very beginning, uh, you know, Palestine, Palestinians and Israelis and Jews in the land but in unbelief and all of, the, all of the implications of that that the church is really wrestling with today. Now, the New Covenant obviously is about the law being put on the heart of people. It's, it's made to uh, Israel and Judah, as was stated. What else about the New Covenant is relevant to the conversation, Mitch? Well, I think we have a beautiful illustration uh, this week of the relevance of the New Covenant because it was in the middle of a Passover Seder, which of course was a celebration of the Old Covenant because it was uh, during, that, uh, during the Seder that we commemorate the shedding of the Lamb's blood for the redemption of the firstborn males. And we even take it further because we tell the whole story of the Exodus the deliverance of the Jewish people from Egyptian bondage, uh, the sweetness of freedom in, uh, in the promised land, all these great, great themes uh, happened, uh, you know, we've observed uh, during this week of Passover. And it's very fitting that in the, in the middle of a Passover Seder that uh, Jesus uh, breaks the, uh, what we believe to be the middle piece of matzah, which symbolizes his priesthood and sacrifice, and uh, and puts it away and, and brings it back, uh, symbolically uh, considering his uh, his resurrection, and uh, and then he lifts the third cup, the cup after the meal, and we know that that's the cup of redemption. So though there's, uh, you know, scholarly debate about the uh, middle piece of matzah to some degree, I have my own strong opinions about it, but there's very little uh, discussion on the third cup. Uh, that's the one after the meal, symbolizes again the blood of the, of the uh, lamb that was shed. And in the, in the middle of this Seder, Jesus pours new meaning into the third cup. He raises it and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. And so we understand that This new covenant, ratified by the shed blood of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, established in the middle of a Jewish Passover Seder, is an invitation for Gentiles, ultimately, to join in. And that's not an obscure part of Scripture. This joining in is not only mapped out in Ephesians, it's mapped out in the olive tree illustration in Romans chapter 11, over and over and over again, and it goes again back to the Abrahamic covenant, uh, where... Israel's, the the exclusive choice of Israel was not to lead to exclusivism, but actually to universalism, but the good kind of universalism, Mm -hmm. the kind of universalism where the gospel would be for everybody, the good news is for everybody, Jews and Gentiles, for all who have been brought near to the promises of God through the shed blood of the Lamb of God. And so I think that that's very important. And of course, Daryl, I know that you want us to talk about 
Uh, are the law being written on the hearts? And you want us to talk about the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, which is a, uh, we, uh, we know we, we have a good Luke-Acts connection there uh, uh, with Jeremiah as well as the book of Hebrews. But certainly uh, the Jewish uh, people uh, waited. And again, this is tied again to the Jewish festivals. So they waited after Passover, counted down 50 days, didn't they? Mm-hmm. And then on the 50th day, coincidentally, God chose the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, or Pentecost, as the day when he would send his Holy Spirit to fulfill this promise. And so you have the New Covenant, the first part of it at least, revealed in the middle of a Seder, and then you have the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the Jewish people. Uh, you have that uh, as part of Shavuot, the fulfillment of, of this great promise. And so, uh, I, I believe that Christians should try and understand their Jewish roots and Jewish heritage and what it means to be grafted in. So it doesn't mean that Gentiles have replaced, it means that Gentiles are included as God always promised. So the sharing of the blood of redemption, of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, of the law being written upon our hearts, this is not something that one or the other has, but in Christ, we all have it. Now, it's important for me just to note in passing for those who are listening that we're taping this uh, during the week of Passover, and so that's uh, Mitch's illusion, even though you'll be hearing this uh, somewhat later, uh, and that imagery is important. I'd like to make a Christological point as an aside here that uh, needs to be observed as well, and that is there's something about the authority of Jesus wrapped up in his, in his taking a um, how can I say this a a feast that has been commanded in the Torah and uh, filling it with fresh symbolism. Uh, you know who has the right to take something that's written uh, in, in Exodus and give it new meaning? He's got to be pretty important to be able to do that. A and prophet greater than Moses. A prophet greater than Moses, and so so even the. Even the choice of taking this core symbolism and adjusting it in light of what God is now doing through Jesus to take one picture of salvation, if you will, and turn it into uh, a mirrored but separate picture of salvation at the same time says an awful lot about who Jesus is. And of course, the resurrection is God's vote in the dispute about whether Jesus has the right to do that or not. So uh, this is a very, very important uh, part of that scene as well. Mitch, you look like you're ready to chime in at any point here. Go ahead. (laughs) You know me well. Uh, I I don't think we should lose the hermeneutical uh, factor here in this discussion. Uh, I was with a brother who, uh, a Korean brother, uh, who was raised uh, as someone who believed that uh, when you looked at Israel in the Old and New Testament, it always referred to the church. We call that replacement theology, supersessionism, and obviously there's a continuum uh, of these doctrines and, and various interpretations. And he said to me that, you know, I was so geared that, to reading the Bible this way that I didn't know there was any other way to read the Bible. Hmm. And so he was a replacement theologian from birth. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then eventually what happened is he was reading the Bible one day 
And uh, the Holy Spirit challenged him. Of course, he's a Presbyterian, so you know I don't know how that really happened. Because can that happen with Presbyterians? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Oh, maybe. Well, okay. So he was. So he was a very conservative guy, and the Lord just said to him, you know, let's try and take Israel as Israel, as the Jewish people. And he said, once he put that together, his whole understanding of Scripture was transformed. Let's face it. Uh, for many, 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 many years, the church has interpreted itself and read itself into the history of Israel, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so what we're talking about is something not only hermeneutical, but almost akin to a worldview. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge of uh, asking our brothers and sisters in the broader church to think about Israel's role actually means that they have to reinvestigate and rethink their basic hermeneutics. What words mean? How literal should Scripture really be taken? And I, I believe that that's a very important issue, and I think that the hermeneutics of the situation needs to be fully addressed. Yeah, and, we're, and I'm going to ask a question that's really going to put this in focus in just a second. But David, do you have any observations as well in terms of uh, both the Christology and the hermeneutical question that rotates around the things like events like the Last Supper? Absolutely. And, you know, it goes to the very character of God. What do we believe about God? Is he a promise-keeping God? Mm -hmm. So it's God's faithfulness we're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it through his keeping of his faithful promises to Israel, he has been glorified through history. Mm -hmm. And for a church through hermeneutics or self-dealing to deny that, to God, that's the first sin. The sin isn't against the Jewish people. The sin is against God himself who staked his reputation on the perpetuity of the Jewish people, who gave them precious promises and said forever, mm -hmm. not just for a limited time. And it, 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 it almost makes God out to be a bigamist because mm -hmm. he marries his people Israel. He says, you're my bride. And then the church says, oh, but he wasn't really talking about you. Mm -hmm. He was talking about us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that kind of hermeneutic just actually ultimately undermines our confidence in the character of God and His ability to keep His promises. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Join us next week for part two. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. Love well.